Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 78 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. We've just finished up with a four-episode series taking a look at suicide during September in order to take advantage of Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month. This topic was so important that I had more than just those four guests lined up, and today's show is an extension of that. My guests today are Dr. Philip Smith and Nick Fedor of the University of Southern Alabama. We're going to be talking about some new ways to look at suicide and hopefully how we're going to make an impact on it. And that's very uncomfortable. Sitting with someone who is in the midst of all the pain in the world, doesn't view life as worth living, doesn't see anything getting better, that, that's, that's hard to sit with. Mm-hmm. Um, not just for the person experiencing it, but for the person who wants to be there and be supportive. And, and to really make a big cultural change, a big social change, it's going to take more people willing to sit with those folks and listen to their story, to, to sit through that, that period of crisis until they can come down from it. That's, that's how I think uh, communities, local organizations are going to help prevent this problem. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Tommy podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, as you know, uh, September is uh, Suicide Prevention Month, and uh, we've just passed the uh, the end of September, uh, and we did that short series on veteran suicide, uh, and unfortunately, I had some really great guests that went even beyond the, um, beyond the, the September uh, time frame. Uh, so I have a couple of guests here uh, from the University, University of South Alabama uh, that's going to be talking a little bit more about veteran mental health and veteran suicide. Uh, so I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Philip Smith and Nick Fedor to the show. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey there. Thank you for having us. No, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I, uh, I appreciate being connected with you, the, the Veterans Recovery Resources, uh, who, uh, who we just uh, uh, had on the show 
recently. Uh, you've worked closely with that organization, but also in the wider space uh, in veteran mental health and veteran suicide in particular. Uh, before we get into your work, I'd like to give you uh, an opportunity to kind of tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, and sort of what you do. So, uh, Phil, if you'd like to go ahead. Uh, sure. So my name is uh, Philip Smith. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, I'm an associate professor at the University of South Alabama, as you said. Um, I got my PhD in clinical psych uh, out in Lubbock, Texas, uh, Texas Tech University, and uh, interned at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center and the VA hospital out there in Albuquerque. Uh, after that, I went up to Rochester, New York, and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Rochester Medical Center's uh, Center for the Study and Prevention of Suicide in their Department of Psychiatry. It's a, a big research and clinical hub for suicide prevention. Uh, and uh, as I said, uh, as an associate professor here at South, um, I do a lot of work um, in the understanding and prevention of suicide and related problems. And uh, and Nick? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a student under under Dr. Smith here. So Do Dr. Smith's my my doctoral advisor at South Alabama. Um, so I'm in our clinical counseling psychology program down in Mobile, Alabama. So I'd be interested, uh, you know, first Phil and then maybe Nick. You know, what got you into clinical mental health? What drew you here? Uh, and then really uh, what got you interested in working with veterans? Uh, it, it, obviously, uh, Phil, this was, you know, you, you started working in the VA as a uh, as your internship, and then suicide is obviously an issue. But, uh, but how would you get from where you were to where you are now? Um, I'm not even always sure how to answer that question. I'm not sure <laughs> myself how I got here. You know, I, I would say that... Uh, much like a lot of people who get into clinical psychology and counseling, um, I found myself at an early age, one of those listeners, um, mm -hmm. someone who, who liked to, to help others and, and, and do good by them. Um, and clinical psychology seemed like an area that, that was uh, well-purposed to that. Um, suicide prevention, interestingly, um, is that is my research and clinical area of expertise. Um, I kind of gravitated towards that because it was the area everyone else was running away from. Um, yes. In a lot of respects, uh, clinical psychology and, and psychiatry um, don't do a good job and haven't historically done a good job uh, of attending to the needs of suicidal people. Um, a lot of our research, for example, on clinical trials for uh, psychotherapies for the longest time would actually exclude people who are at risk for suicide. So that ended up with us, you know, a bunch of years later um, with a bunch of data saying, yeah, CBT works for depression and uh, all these different interventions work, except for we don't know if they work for people who are also at risk for suicide. And, and we've done a good job more lately of correcting that problem. But I think that sort of represents in the, in the field something of a, uh, of a problem that, that I, as somebody who, you know, want, wanting to, to make the most um, do the most good, have the most impact, felt like suicide prevention was an area where that could be done. No, I, I agree. This is uh, very much a, a taboo subject. Some of reason why we're, we're bringing out, we're trying to talk about it as much as we can. Uh, one of my earlier guests, Stacy Friedenthal, um, who, who's another uh, suicide expert, um, uh, she said the same thing. Clinicians in, in my master's program, we weren't taught how to address or create safety plans or, or, or acknowledge suicide, 
uh, it was more about how not to get sued, um, how to document so that you, you know, um, how to do, you know, uh, M1 holds uh, and get them out of your office as soon as possible <laughs> kind of thing, right? And so it's almost where anytime the word suit, you know, before you even start to say it, it becomes this galvanizing thing. And, and that's even in the clinical community, much less in the wider veteran community. Well, and, and to your point, I, I also reminded of my very first clinical interview I did as a graduate student. Um, and I remember very vividly the very first thing this guy said to me when he sat down in his chair was, I'm going to kill myself next week. And I just remember all the, the very visceral panic-like symptoms I experienced in that moment um, and realized just how uh, difficult that was going to be. Um, not just to work through my own stuff and my own fears about um, how I was going to help this guy, um, but also how I was going to try to communicate that I was willing to be there with him, willing to work with him on what was very uh, a very scary set of thoughts for him as well. Um, so that's kind of one more, more of the experiences that I've had that have really told me this is the right area for me to be in to help not just suicidal people, but also uh, students like Nick who are really interested and motivated and passionate. Um, to do this kind of work. I find that even even those who are trained in suicide prevention and suicide assessment, suicide is scary. So when you're sitting with, with somebody who is expressing the desire to, to end their own life, a clinician can just lose the, their clinical skills. So all the things that you know how to do to treat depression or to treat trauma, all those clinical skills, they go out the window because you're so scared and aroused with your client. Um, and I find that with people who, who are even trained to do suicide um, interventions. No, and I think that's a great point in that, uh, you know, in a very real way, we know as mental health professionals, um, you know, in, in some ways the lives of our clients are in our hands, but in a very real way, that's the case there. Uh, and that's a very weighty kind of heavy responsibility. Um, and, uh, and you're right, it can be pretty unnerving. Mm-hmm. But the, it's interesting that there's the similar, the same things that we use to be helpful with people who are depressed are they're quite similar to what we would use to intervene and assess for suicide. It's just some, there's something about the topic that we just lose all our all our clinical skills when that topic comes up. So, Nick, for you, was was this something that you were interested in coming into your clinical, um, uh, your, your studies, or is this something that has emerged since you've started? So, I um, I originally wanted to be a journalist. I, I, so I was trained to be a writer. Um, I, was, I was interested in stories um, and people telling people stories. Um, and I think they go hand in hand, um, psychology and doing therapy and um, being a storyteller. And I guess at a certain point in my journey of trying to be a writer, I just kind of got sick of telling other people's stories. Um, I felt like there's, a, there's an act of, of using that journalists engage in, um, using other people's stories to make some broader point that didn't sit well with me. Um, and I think like, like Dr. Smith, I had a, a listener streak in me. So I thought I'd, I'd get engaged um, in listening and I actually joined a, a suicide hotline <clears throat> in the city I was living in actually called The Listening Ear. Um, and I found that I was, I was pretty good at it, um, for what it's worth. 
And actually, my first my first uh, suicidal call was it was a veteran. Um, I remember it exactly. It was a veteran from calling from Camp Pendleton. Um, so he couldn't. Guy felt like he couldn't talk to his commanding officers about what was going on. So he decided to call up this number well across the country to talk to a 19 year old um, about his struggles. And then I guess since then it kind of led me towards understanding suicide. I think people, when people think of suicide as this one thing, but each suicide is a very unique story um, for each individual person. And I, I, I like wanting to understand that, understanding that story of how people end up uh, at the end of the rope and wanting to attempt. No, I, I appreciate that. There is the complicated nature of suicide, especially when it comes to veterans from, from my standpoint, and both of you have experience with this, that uh, it's not all just PTSD, right? It's not just because I have PTSD uh, that a veteran is suicidal, uh, that there are many, many more complicated factors. At, at one point in one veteran's life, a trigger could um, push them to the edge of attempt and, and not. Uh, um, what do, do either of you see the differences, perhaps, if there are any, between veterans in the complicated nature of, of suicide versus those that may have never served? You know, I think, um, as Nick was saying, every, everyone arrives at wanting to die by suicide from, from probably a little bit of a different place. Um, now, historically speaking, uh, being in the military was actually protective of suicide. Um, suicide rates were lower. Um, that changed. Um, and there, there's a lot of possible explanations for why that's the case. Um, it changed around 2000, around and, the Iraq war. Right, around that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the thing is to consider that for a while, the idea of, of one's identity, of the connectedness they have uh, to the military can be a very protective thing. Right. Um, however, there are also common experiences that veterans have that can put them at risk for suicide. Um, you've mentioned PTSD, uh, combat exposure. Um, I also think about uh, transitional difficulties. Uh, when guys come out, um, I, I, don't, I don't think we exactly do a great job of um, taking people we have trained to be our warriors and then, then turn around and do a similarly good job of training them to go back to their lives and, and live the lives um, with everything that, 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 we, that they've taken on as a burden during their time in service. And then to that piece about transitioning, you're, you're taking people who have been surrounded by um, brothers and sisters who, who they died for, and then you're moving them back into civil society where they have lost this sense of connection. There is rarely any other group that I can think of where we take them and they form these incredibly close bonds and then we pull them out of that. So there's a sense of loss that um, people in the military would feel when they transition back into civilian life that's just unique to that population. I think something, too, I've heard said, um, I like the way it's put, that you know we went during boot camp and training and then in service, um, military service men and women are, are trained to do their job together right? They go through it together, they serve together, and then when we bring them back, they have to go through the stresses and difficulties of reintegration alone. 
Um, they have to go through the healing process after they've served by themselves. Um, and that's problematic. And I think uh, definitely that sense of isolation, uh, I, I heard something similar, uh, Phil, the idea of, you know, humans are herd animals, much like uh, horses are herd animals, right? You know, we're used to uh, social interaction. Uh, and if you take a horse and, and put them in a pasture miles and miles away from every other horse um, and they have no, no herd to attach to, um, uh, then eventually they will get sick and they will pass away and, you know, and, and they will uh, you know, pine away, so to speak. Um, and so the very things that would cause a veteran to isolate um, and, and sort of separate themselves from that group that, or any group, um, that that can be detrimental to them too. Right. And, and, and as with so many things like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, so many of the very problems that drive the distress and the hopelessness and the psychological pain are the very things that are going to um, motivate someone to not do the things that would help them get over it. Right. Someone who's depressed has no motivation to get out of bed, uh, to make the phone call to, to their buddy to, to go do something. Yet, uh, from my perspective as a clinician, when I'm working with someone, those are the things that I want that guy to do so that he can begin to live his life a bit more effectively, to get the reinforcers, to get the social connections that are going to help that depression go away. And it's the depression making it uh, making it less likely he's going to do that. Yeah, the idea of uh, the ones with the greatest need have the least resources to meet those needs. And, and, and that can uh, really be a challenge. And now, um, the two of you, and, and we were connected uh, to the two of you again, like I said, through the uh, Veterans Recovery Resources. Um, Nick, I, I had heard that you had done a, a really great presentation at their uh, peer support symposium um, now probably about a month or so ago, uh, talking about uh, crisis moments, suicide in general, um, but, uh, but obviously here we're talking about veterans. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, uh, that presentation that you did. Sure. Um, so it was a presentation geared towards peer support specialists and how peer support specialists, veteran peer support specialists can use uh, theories of suicide, so theories of why suicide happens and when it is most likely to occur to help inform their work with veterans. Um, so I think the, the thing you're referring to in particular about um, assessing for risk in, in, a, in a veteran um, comes from the work of David Rudd um, called the fluid vulnerability theory. And the idea with the fluid vulnerability theory is that suicide risk um, is dynamic. And we all actually have a risk for suicide. And it's dynamic in the sense that it changes over time. It fluctuates over time. And when I say that we all have um, a risk for suicide, it, what I'm saying is that we're all, we all have a baseline risk for suicide. Some people... Some people's baseline risk for suicide is just higher than others, and, and that's uh, determined by kind of the accumulation of, of the risk factors you think are related to suicide, like trauma, like um, childhood abuse, like mental illness, and so, so on. So a person with, with a bunch of these factors will have a higher baseline risk than a person with, say, less uh, of these accumulated risk factors. Now, the reason that baseline risk is important is that it, it, it raises a person's um, level so that they're close 
to what's called, um, think of it like a, a danger zone, right? The baseline, if a baseline risk is elevated, a person is just constantly near a danger zone where they're liable for a, um, a lethal suicide attempt. And, and the important part of that is really that um, suicide risk fluctuates over time. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, very common to sort of think of people as either suicidal or not. Um, uh, and that's just not the way it works. Um, as Nick was saying, uh, anyone, any individual person's um, level of suicide risk, just it, goes, it varies over time. Um, and there are a lot of things that can happen to take somebody who has a higher baseline risk and push them over that edge, right? Um, and the thing is about that person, they might get close to that edge, you know, any number of times. And it's really hard to predict. I, w I would almost argue impossible to predict um, when that person is going to reach that, that danger zone, when they're going to be a true risk for dying by suicide. So, uh, and one of the things that, uh, that I have conceptualized, and, and again, uh, Stacy Friedenthal and I talked about it in our uh, episode, was this continuum of suicide um, from uh, just vague ideation or really no suicidal thoughts to vague ideation to specific and then making plans and actions. Um, you know, when we get close to this danger zone, someone can constantly live in that um, I'm, I'm constantly thinking very specific thoughts. Um, I may be even formulating plans, but I can do that for a very, very long time, and I can stay just under the threshold of that danger zone, um, and then maybe a small thing can tip me over and put me on that edge. And that oh. small thing you're referring to is, is, is oftentimes unknowable, right. right? Particularly as a mental health provider, um, I, have to, I have to understand that that small thing is not gonna, I'm not gonna know about that in my session all the time. That's gonna be out in that person's life. So I might see them on Monday and, and think, okay, you know, there's, there's depression, there's post-traumatic stress, there's a history of suicide attempts, and there's some, um, maybe some, some moderate levels of, of desiring to die by suicide, but maybe absent plans and preparations, I think that person's safe to go home that day. Wednesday rolls around and, and their spouse decides to leave them, or they lose their job. Or they lose their job or any number of triggers that might happen. Um, now, those are pretty big triggers. Mm -hmm. uh, you're referring there's could be even smaller ones. Um, where In that moment in time, that individual uh, makes that decision to die by suicide. And, and as I said, that's a really hard thing to predict, um, particularly when so many of the things we use to predict suicide are, are far more common than suicide is itself. When you say the things we use to predict are far more common, what are you referring to? So, um, as, as an example, um, you know, a, a lot of my research, um, you know, suicide is a, a really um, all too common event, right? It happens a lot. Everyone knows somebody that's been impacted by suicide. Um, and if you look at the, at the very same time at how, how often suicide occurs, it's also a very rare event. Um, so if I were sitting here saying, all right, I want to predict over the next year who's going to die, if any particular individual is going to die by suicide, I, I would almost always say no, right? Because um, what is it, less than 0.001% of the population um, dies by suicide each year. Um, 
if I begin to add things like depression or post-traumatic stress disorder into that, which are predictors of suicide, my uh, my probabilistic uh, ability to predict suicide doesn't increase that much, right? Maybe I'm at like 99.7% of the population is not going to die by suicide that year. Um, so so trying to take a, a, a an actuarial approach where we're predicting something that doesn't happen as often as the predictors we're using uh, makes it a really difficult thing to do. No, I can really, uh, I can really see that. You know, the idea of suicide being prevalent over people's lives, right? It, it, as you say, it's common across a lifetime, or it's maybe common across a community, uh, especially if we look at suicide clusters and the contagion effect and things like that. Um, it, but then, yes, you're 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 accurate. You know, I, I often say that uh, I've lost more of my uh, fellow service members that I deployed with to suicide than we did when we were in combat in, in, you know, we lost significant in combat, but then also thinking back that I haven't had anybody in my close circle that has, has, has really made a, a fatal attempt in years. Right. And so there is this, it is very common, but it's also rare. And that, that does seem like a paradox. However, I, I do see veterans who are depressed all the time and with substance abuse all the time. And, uh, and, and with, um, uh, you know, PTSD and lack of purpose of meaning and all these different factors, those are all present, um, but there's no telling which one of those or a combination of those will put that, that veteran over the line into the danger zone. Right. Of all those people you see with those problems, most of them are not going to kill themselves. Um, and, and perhaps more importantly, of those that, and they are, they all are at greater risk by virtue of all the things you said, um, and even for those who will go on to make a suicide attempt, knowing when that is the case is just a, it's, it's really an insurmountable problem in a lot of ways. Now, uh, Phil, this is something that you're doing um, separate from your work there or, or maybe in conjunction with your work there at University of South Alabama with the uh, Operation Deep Dive with uh, America's Warrior Partnership. Uh, I'd like to hear more about that. Sure. So uh, Operation Deep Dive is a uh, uh, really a joint venture with a lot of people involved, and it's a really big project. Um, and it's really based on this idea that, you know, for as much as we have begun understanding suicide quite a bit better, um, our ability to treat suicide has gotten quite a bit better. You know, as I mentioned before, we used to to kick people who are at suicide risk for suicide out of treatment studies. Well, well now we have interventions that actually sh- show um, impact for um, for being helpful for reducing suicide risk. Um, but uh, the rate of suicide keeps going up, um, and particularly going up in veterans. Um, the CDC report um, this summer came out and said that, I think since 1999, thereabouts, we've seen something close to a 25% or greater increase in suicide in this country. Um, and there's also an interesting... Uh, a figure, a little, little map of the country that shows how suicide rates have gone up upwards of 30 or 40 percent in some states. So it varies pretty considerably. And uh, there's actually only one state, uh, I think it's Nevada, um, that saw a decrease in suicide rates during that time. Um, and their decrease was less than 1 percent. And uh, you also have to understand that Nevada has one of the highest suicide rates in the country to start with. Um, so Coming from the perspective of 
a lot of what we're doing isn't really working at the, the broader level. Um, Operation Deep Dive uh, tries to take a little bit of a different approach to understanding and preventing suicide. Um, that approach, I guess, can broadly be summarized as what we call the public health model. Um, the idea being that, all right, um, it is absolutely important to spend, uh, invest, invest in clinical resources for people who are at risk for suicide. Um, you know, things like uh, dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, safety planning, um, all sorts of uh, pieces that'll help pull the guy out of the river who's drowning, right? Um, and at the same time, we have to we have to also look at more upstream prevention strategies. So we got to we got to do some things to make sure that guy doesn't get anywhere close to the river to begin with, right? So deep dive uh, is working across the country with uh, seven communities currently, and we're adding some more communities for next year to look at what we're describing as social, cultural, and ecological factors that are uh, protective or not of suicide risk in those different communities, with the idea being that if we go out into these different places, find out what these people are doing, find out what systems, what supports are in place in one community versus another, we, beca we can begin to understand what makes for a resilient community, what makes for a resilient uh, context uh, for people to live in, so that we can, again, prevent suicide more from the upstream than, than having to um, pull everybody out of the river at, the, at their crisis moment. Um, so that's kind of a broad uh, uh, snapshot of it. What can I tell you specifically? So with these seven communities, um, is it looking at veterans specifically, or is it looking at the wider community of which veterans are a subset? It is a veteran-specific study. Um, so we're partnered with America's Warrior Partnership, who's a national nonprofit organization that does a lot of work um, working with local agencies, veteran service organizations, to help build their capacity and their infrastructure for, um, for serving veterans. Um, and, and all the seven communities currently are, are what they call uh, AWP affiliates. So they're currently working with America's Warrior Partnership. Um, so we will go into these communities and work with their affiliates um, to help understand their communities, uh, their veteran service communities, quite a bit better. So when you talk about the social, the cultural, uh, cultural and the ecological aspects of uh, what you're looking at or what Operation Deep Dive is looking at, uh, what kind of factors are you considering specifically? Well, <clears throat> um, at this point, um, it's really early in the study uh, to start. Um, so we're really going now, and, and really this summer we went out and visited each of these sites and did some interviews and, and did some community meetings uh, to try to understand um, what was going on in the community, as well as to, to get some partnerships mobilized um, so that we can begin to understand more about what's happening um, and, and why people are or are not dying by suicide. Um, so right now we're working a lot with um, local coroners and medical examiners so that they can help us identify veterans who take their own lives and that we can go in and begin to understand what happened to that guy or girl to, to end at that point. Um, so we're not only working to understand uh, the different relationships that that person had or didn't prior to their death, uh, but we're also looking at different levels of information. We're hoping to go in and understand their um, mental health care and their medical care, 
uh, right now working with the VA and the DOD to try to to develop data sharing agreements so that we can begin to understand um, how they passed through those systems um, prior to their death. Um, we're working with uh, TransUnion, the financial credit reporting agency, to try to understand um, the sort of financial picture that that person experienced um, leading up to his or her death. Um, and then we're also, and we have a few other partners as well we're trying to, to collect data from, but we're also going to go into to that community and, and hope to interview some of the important people in that person's life to understand their trajectory, to understand the path that, that person took um, leading up to their death. So we can begin to understand not just not just what risk factors were there, not just was depression there, not just was PTSD there, but, but where do we miss him, right? Where were they going and where were they not and where did they have problems that we could have otherwise had a service or had a person in place um, that would have uh, derailed that person's trajectory to suicide. It sounds uh, very much like an uh, epidemiological study. You know, what is the, you know, what is the, the, maybe the contagion or what are the factors in, in each contained, uh, contained location? Um, it, this is a different way of looking at, at suicide. You know, we, we talk about, you know, we need to solve veteran suicide, but veteran suicide is really a lagging indicator of underlying unresolved problems. And that sounds like what Operation Deep Dive is trying to identify as those underlying problems. I would agree with that, absolutely. Um, you know, as a psychologist and someone who really deals with individuals day in and day out, it is my bias to look at what problems, what mental health, is, it, mental health issues did that person experience. Um, and those are important. And, and at the very same time, um, we don't always look at the top side of that. We don't look at the social context that person grew up in, um, that person lived in, and other other sort of broader factors that could have otherwise um, provided a better um, situation for him or her to live in. Um, so I agree with that. It's, it's definitely more on that sociological, epidemiological level. And, and so this sounds like it's going to uncover some of those uh, some of those triggers that, uh, uh, and Nick, as you were saying. Um, causes uh, someone who is, has a higher risk baseline uh, to emerge up into that danger zone. Hopefully. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's absolutely true. We're going we're gonna to learn more about sort of the life experiences that these people have. Um, and as well, hopefully, to inform prevention efforts. And that, yeah. that's really the most important thing. Um, you know, the, this study um, being funded by Bristol-Myers um, is – uh, it's kind of a mess in a lot of respects because suicide is a messy issue mm -hmm. and and kind of to Nick's point earlier that people arrive at the the thought of killing themselves at sometimes different very different places so trying to um, trying to to solve every one of those problems would be very problematic whereas we think that if we take a broader public health approach and we begin looking at how systems can be in place and how we can build um, more resilient communities, we can have a much broader impact on, on the rate of suicide, which, as I said earlier, is only going up. I would hope that most people are thinking, when they think about suicide, they're thinking about systemic factors, like, oh, the, you know, the economy, when the economy is doing poor, that has some implications for people ending their own life, or, um, you know, if, in, if their income is scarce. Um, but even though we, we might make the connection, we're always 
tending to intervene at the individual level, at the at the individual person. So the idea with a project like this is we're going to want to intervene at a system-wide level if possible. So finding where the system is lacking, you know, I don't know if we're going to intervene at the grand system of the economy, um, but finding where we could intervene at broader levels would make a bigger difference than just intervening at the individual level with stuff like DBT. Right. We're kind of commenting on that. Um, having gone to these communities this summer and talked to a lot of people about them, um, you know, one of the things that, that I've observed uh, are differences in really how connected those communities are. Um, and, and by connected, I mean just how well integrated those different veteran service organizations are. Um, there's some communities where there's a lot of really good communication between them. And when a guy gets into trouble and he's at the end of his rope and he's really at risk, um, there seems to be a lot of people who know each other and are able to make calls and to get that person connected, whether it's to, whether it's to mental health resources or to social service resources or just, you know, any kind of support. Um, and I feel like those communities do a really good job of, of preventing suicide because uh, their nets are a bit tighter, right? Those people talk a lot more. Whereas some other communities, they might not have those good communication um, communication networks set up. So there, there's a few places where someone might slip through the cracks and not get their needs met. No, and I, I like how you, you pointed that out, Phil. It's not because of the abundance of resources. There are communities that have many, many resources, but if those resources are, are disjointed and they're not connected, uh, then that's about as bad as having no net at all. You know, one organization sure. saying that, well, I can do everything, uh, or uh, more specifically, um, I do uh, job placement, so all a veteran needs is employment, and if there's, and, and if that doesn't solve the veteran's problem, that's the veteran's problem, that's not mine, right? You know, so I, I really like that idea of the communication that goes back to the idea of us being, uh, you know, herd animals and not being isolated and, and things like that. More resources are not the answer. It's greater communication between the resources that are there. More resources, more resources would help too. <laughs> um, but absolutely, the, the, the interconnectedness, the the the, the ability for for um, someone to to have touch points at many different places where where they might. Um, get their needs met where they're otherwise slipping through the cracks. And Nick, I really like the idea uh, that you were talking about and making change at the systemic level, um, not at the national level, like you said, in, in that big piece, uh, but this idea of Operation Deep Dive focusing on communities uh, because uh, a colleague of mine, Tony Ellsworth, says uh, suicide is a national problem with a local solution. Uh, what may work in Phoenix is not going to work in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, and But having, you know, what characteristics are uh, common amongst those, um, say, better at, at sui preventing suicide, those communities that are better at preventing suicide, can be applied in a unique way. And so establishing a system at a local level, I could see how that would work. And that kind of, I think, represents... The, the broader attitude of this project. Um, so often researchers like myself will sit in my uh, fancy office and, and have really important thoughts and, and, you know, that's fine and good. But it's really about getting out to that community and finding out what's going on, um, what's, what's happening at the local level, 
right? What's working, what's not, um, and, and really uh, partnering with with local people and local groups uh, to to help in a shared collaborative problem solving approach to this issue. There are things a community can do that a clinician can't. There are, again, there's so many so many people who are suicidal that will see a clinician, and they're in touch hopefully with their community. <clears throat> Or you'd like to you'd like to think that they're more in touch with the community than any given clinician. And I think that goes back even to the beginning where uh, where you had said, Phil, that a even if clinicians are really wanting to shy away from the taboo subject of suicide, uh, a community member with very little or no clinical training is even more likely to really keep it even more at arm's length. But but you know just you know outside the walls of the castle where. Well, that's what professionals are for. I don't do that. And, and, and that's one of the things that I try to get across. And especially, again, with Veterans Recovery Resource, we're talking about peers, uh, a suicidal veteran or anyone who is uh, contemplating suicide is more likely to come in contact with someone in the community, a police officer, mm-hmm. a clergy member, a friend, uh, somebody they have coffee with than they are with a mental health professional. Absolutely. Um, we have a project at South Alabama here. Um, it's a STAMSA-funded project for campus suicide prevention, and one of our, our biggest efforts is gatekeeper training. Well, we are going out into our community and teaching people how to identify uh, individuals who are in crisis, how to talk to them, how to, to really change their attitude about suicide prevention and mental health awareness, really being everybody's business, um, and, and making everyone else more willing to, to talk to someone who might be in a crisis. Um, to connect them and, and bring them into their community, um, and as well as to refer to mental health resources. No, there's uh, it definitely um, the ways to reduce stigma. Um, you know, protesting doesn't work. The 22 push-ups for 22 a day, you know, raising awareness, but that's not really effective. Education, we've been trying that for decades, trying to, to teach people. Um, but like you say, the connection, the person-to-person uh, the communication piece, the getting exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast and the, the blog and everything else is changing the way that we think and talk. And that is done through connection, not necessarily just through ramming facts down people's throats. <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> so uh, coming up on the end of the time here, uh, any last thoughts you, you think that uh, you'd like to share before we uh, sign off? I think the the important thing to know about I guess the fluid vulnerability theory and the idea that suicide risk is it's dynamic and it fluctuates is that this hypothetical level of risk, that danger zone I talked about, is not long lasting. So if if a person is above that level for a specific period of time where they're liable for a lethal suicide attempt, they won't stay above that level. So if if they can stay alive or if, if you can help another stay alive through that, um, they will eventually de-escalate back down to, to their baseline level of risk. Right, and, and to add to that, um, sort of my, my take home would be, um, as again, as a researcher and a mental health professional, you know, I think I've done a lot of great work, um, and I can, I can keep doing that work, um, but all the mental health providers in the world aren't gonna solve all the people who are suicidal problems alone. Um, it is really about the people in the community. It's about uh, being available, being willing um, 
to, to be there for someone who's in crisis. Um, and that's very uncomfortable. Um, sitting with someone who is in the midst of all the pain in the world, doesn't view life as worth living, uh, doesn't see anything getting better, um, that, that's, that's hard to sit with. Mm-hmm. Um, not just for the person experiencing it, but for the person who wants to be there and be supportive. Um, and, and to really make a big cultural change, a big social change, it's going to take more people willing to sit with those folks and listen to their story, um, to, to sit through that, that period of crisis until they can come down from, from it. Um, and, and that's, that's how I think uh, communities, local organizations are going to, going to help prevent this problem. You know, I, I really appreciate that. And, and, um, even going back again, what you were saying before about how, uh, especially being in the military can be both protective uh, and a risk factor, um, is that even that brotherhood of a veteran to a veteran and going back to, to Nick, what you were talking about, the, the peer support, um, a veteran would be more likely to sit through that period of space with another veteran and more likely to carry that burden and that pain for another veteran uh, well, at the same time, carry the risk of almost a contagion um, of being in that place in another time. So it, it can be really, really tricky, maybe. Well, uh, gentlemen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on the show and, and have a conversation today. Um, if somebody wanted to reach out, maybe uh, find out what you're, uh, what you're doing there at the uh, University of South Alabama or, or, you know, the study, is there any way that uh, they can reach out and get in contact with you guys? Sure. Uh, we have a website um, for our research group and for our uh, campus suicide prevention program. It's uh, www.southalabama.edu backslash jagconnect. Um, there's some information about um, campus resources, but also they can get in touch with us um, as well as link to other resources um, for suicide prevention. They'll make sure that uh, that's in the show notes uh, for anybody that's uh, going to be interested in looking that up if you didn't get that uh, as you were driving or running while you're listening to this podcast. So once again, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. We appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. Great conversation. The work of the Deep Dive Project will give us a greater understanding of what works and what doesn't when it comes to veteran suicide. As I mentioned in the show, protesting and education are not enough. We need to make connections in communities and we need to be prepared. Gatekeeper training, helping those most likely to come in contact with a veteran in suicidal crisis, can help us be more ready to step in when we need it before a crisis happens, before we get to that danger zone that Nick was talking about. A couple of episodes ago, you heard Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas and I talking about how we tend to be captivated by famous suicides, but then time passes and the impact fades from our memory. It's like crisis rubbernecking. One of the reasons we pass by things like that is that we don't feel like we have the expertise to be able to do anything about it. But if we were medically trained, we could stop and render aid. If we were trained in basic suicide intervention techniques, we could similarly stop and render aid to those around us in crisis. And we could keep ourselves out of that danger zone that Nick was talking about also. Another interesting point that Dr. Smith brought up that I hadn't considered is that suicide is both common and rare. 
It's common in that many of us are impacted by it. In my own experience, the first funeral I remember attending was of a cousin who had taken his own life. I don't know a veteran today, current error or not, who doesn't know someone who has died by suicide. It's always there, an ever-present risk, and yet it doesn't happen nearly as often as many people think. Not all veterans are suicidal, and not even most veterans are suicidal. As he mentions in the show, the vast majority of veterans who are seeking mental health treatment now are not going to die by suicide, but the potential is always there. It's as if the commonness makes it look like a critical focus, but the rarity of it makes it so that we're surprised by it when it does happen. It's definitely an aspect to consider. We always appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn about veteran mental health. I've gotten a lot of great feedback about the show, and I know that you're out there listening. One thing I've heard that sometimes some of the stuff that we talk about when clinicians talk to each other, like today, kind of go over people's heads, like what's neurofeedback, or even today when we were talking about an epidemiological study. We definitely don't intend to do that. My goal is to bring more familiarity with mental health professionals, not less. By the way, an epidemiological study is a study of how, when, and why a disease occurs in a population. It's a study of the epidemic. And by any definition of the word epidemic, the suicide rate in the United States across all populations certainly qualifies as one. So I just want to thank you for hanging in there with us. And if you ever have any questions, reach out to me on VeteranMentalHealth.com and I'll answer any question you might have. That's what we're trying to do on the Headspace and Timing website, bring you as much information as we can about veteran mental health. If you want to keep up with us, you can now get the latest blog posts and podcasts delivered to your Facebook Messenger, which will make it even easier for you to listen, learn, and share with those you care about. Stop what you're doing right now, head over to VeteranMentalHealth.com, and in the middle of that picture, right at the front of the page, you'll see a big orange button. Click that, and it'll take you through the process. Pretty easy. Next week, we're going to continue talking to another veteran about his own mental health journey, and not just his own, but what he did for those he had responsibility for. My guest next week is Brigadier General Don Bolduc, former commander of Special Operations Command Africa. We talk about his own experience in denying, then acknowledging the impact of multiple deployments, seeking support, then putting measures in place to make sure the troops in his command did the same. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it, and until then, stay focused and be well. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at Dwayne at VeteranMentalHealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com or ChangeYourPOV.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out. Because remember, veterans, you're not alone, ever.
The struggle is real. Found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually, my drinking it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly, death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies. Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me. R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility. Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.